0: You're listening to The Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. Welcome to The Hard Men Podcast. I am your host, Eric Kahn. In this episode, I'm going to take an in-depth look at critical theory. I'll examine its origins, its main proponents, and basic ideological framework and core beliefs as well as how it's evolved through the years and why it's important to understand this ideology, which is the basic foundation behind critical race theory, feminism, Black Lives Matter, intersectionality, and various other social justice movements so prominent in the American culture today. So the first thing I want to do today is take a look at critical theory and its main proponents. Critical theory is a social theory pioneered and promoted by the Institute for Social Research, which was founded at Goth University in Frankfurt, Germany. Known as the Frankfurt School, this group consisted of social theorists, academics, political dissidents, all of whom formulated their ideas in the interwar period between 1918 and 1939. Now, the principal members of the Frankfurt School included Theodore Adorno, psychologist Eric Fromm, Herbert Marcuse, Walter Benjamin, Jürgen Habermas, and Max Horkheimer. These theorists, many of whom were Jewish, represented differing degrees of Western Marxism, and they engaged in a wide field of interests, from philosophy and sociology, all the way to art, music, and psychology. Likewise, many other individuals were associated with the Frankfurt School, though they were not technically members of it. Now, as World War II approached, these figures were dispersed from Germany and they eventually carried their teachings with them to the United States and other places as well. Marcuse, for instance, immigrated to the US in 1934 and in 1943 began working with the OSS, their precursor to the Central Intelligence Agency where he specialized in anti-Nazi propaganda projects. Critical of the Soviet blend of totalitarian communism, Marcuse studied under Martin Heidegger and was also a student of the teachings of Karl Marx and Hegel. He participated in the socialist Spartacus uprising and had an in-depth understanding of how mass media could be used to sway public opinion. Marcuse would work for the U.S. Department of State until 1951, and later went on to teach at both Columbia and then Harvard Universities. Often considered the father of the new left, Marcuse's teachings spawned left-leaning and Marxist-friendly movements across campuses in the 1960s and 70s. He pioneered ideas like repressive tolerance, which is the practice of denying basic human rights like free speech to members of the dominant ruling class. What I want to do now is take a look at the ideological framework and core beliefs behind critical theory. There are 10 of these points. First, critical theory is the offspring of Marxism. According to Stephen Eric Bronner, critical race theory was conceived within the intellectual crucible of Marxism, quote. While the members of the Frankfurt School represented a wide spectrum of Marxist beliefs, they each shared the core beliefs of Karl Marx's fundamental doctrines. They rejected a world created by God and structured according to his will. They saw no overarching hand of providence orchestrating the course of history. They rejected a morality that was derived from divine revelation and scripture. And they saw God-ordained authority structures and institutions, things like father rule, Christian family, monogamous marriage, property ownership, and wealth disparity, well, they saw all of these as sources of oppression that must be annihilated in order to achieve what they called a utopian paradise. Instead, they held to historical materialism, which is the claim that history did not develop from a set of ideals or from divine act of creation. But instead, social arrangements arose merely from practical concerns and power struggles among different people groups. So, for example, in one of his early essays, Frederick Ingalls argued that families were originally matriarchal and polygamous, and that patriarchy arose because of the practical concern men had to know which sons belonged to them and thus guarantee their lineage. In this view, which gave rise to militant feminist ideologies, patriarchal and family structures are seen as inherently oppressive to women and they must be overthrown in order that women would experience true liberation and happiness. It's worth pointing out that feminism is itself inherently a Marxist doctrine that was spawned from both Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. Now, point number two critical theory seeks to undermine the Christian understanding of authority structures or hierarchy, as well as basic moral virtues. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, if God is dead, Anything is permitted. In other words, without God the Creator, there is no basis for Christian morality. The core tenet of critical theory is to challenge Christian normative societal structures and the basic morality that comes from them. Now, according to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, critical theory stands opposed to traditional theories of societal structures and, quote, seeks emancipation from slavery, acts as a liberating influence, and works to create a world which satisfies the needs and powers of human beings, end quote. What critical theorists find enslaving, most of all, is Christian morality and hierarchical structures. According to Bronner, this meant, quote, reconfiguring the family, sexuality, and education, quote. So that's exactly what the proponents of the Frankfurt School set out to do was to undermine the family's sexuality and to reclaim, or claim for the first time in many places, education. Like Kant before them, critical theorists valued, above all else, the complete autonomy of the individual, and they sought to free that individual from every societal constraint, including to free the libido from Christian sexual mores, men and women from their families, servants from their masters, and even employees from their employers. Third, critical theory defines the core struggle of humanity as class struggles between oppressor and oppressed. Like Marx, critical theorists saw inherent problems with the way industrialized and capitalist social structures created classes, what they called the bourgeois and the proletariat, hierarchies, and in turn became systems of oppression. Because of industrialized factories, men and women were separated from the fruits of their labor, and they became nothing more than mindless cogs in the machine. One of the key points of discussion within Marxist theory is alienation and reification, which are the processes by which men are dehumanized and objectified, reduced merely to digits on a bottom line or a spreadsheet. It's worth noting at this point that Marx and his followers were often keenly aware of real problems within the industrialized and capitalist systems, and we should not be quick to ignore those insights. But at the same time, we should be aware that their solutions have given rise to some of the bloodiest totalitarian regimes in human history. Whereas Marx focused primarily on the economic oppression of rich and poor, the Frankfurt School expanded these categories of oppression to other areas, including race, sexuality, art, and education. Eventually, in the late 1980s, critical theory would spawn critical race theory, which focuses primarily on perceived microaggressions between minority ethnicities and mainly white people. It's vital to remember that the key similarity between Marx, critical theory, and critical race theory that we see today is the desire to undermine the traditional view of ruling fathers in Christian morality. It is the father, in their view, who poses the greatest threat to the widespread acceptance of Marxist ideologies. This is why Black Lives Matter and feminism both, as offspring of Marxism, take aim at patriarchy. Fourth, critical theory opposes hegemony in all its forms. Critical theory seeks to eradicate all forms of hegemony, that is, the capacity to exert dominance over others by removing class distinctions, privilege, wealth, and authority structures. Thus, the Marxist focus is to liberate the oppressed by toppling the oppressor, dominant class, often by whatever means necessary. More importantly, critical theorists embrace a strategy of counter-hegemonic strategy, as they call it, to demolish the cultural distinctions of the dominant and ruling class. An example today is the way pop culture is used to celebrate minorities, homosexuals, and queer-affirming lifestyles, while white men are portrayed in demeaning fashion as sort of toxic idiots in need of a black man or a female protagonist to save them. Here's looking at you, Star Wars. Now, in turn, the culture of the minority class is promoted and strengthened in an attempt to empower the quote-unquote oppressed in order that they gain power over the quote-unquote oppressor. This is why symbols of the dominant white quote-unquote oppressor class, things like the Confederate flag, statues of Lincoln, or even local business or police agencies, well, these are actively destroyed, while symbols of the quote-unquote oppressed class are elevated. And probably the best modern example, from Hollywood at least, is the film Black Panther, which attempts to show the superiority, supposedly, of African tribal culture over against the civilizations of white Christianity. Other forms of hegemonic repression that must be destroyed include, according to Bronner, imperialism, militarism, economic exploitation, patriarchal family structures, religious dogmatism, and false needs generated by consumerism. This is why critical race theorists talk about decolonizing their bookshelves, defunding the police, and proudly scream their party slogan, down with the patriarchy. The greatest irony of all, perhaps? Well, it's this. Critical theorists don't actually want a system without hierarchy or hegemonic dominance. What they're really after but won't honestly tell you is that they want a transfer of power. They want the power to move from white men and they want it to transfer to women and minorities predominantly. Now, fifth, critical race theory is very much focused on, quote-unquote, social justice. Major topics among critical theorists are social justice and oppression. At first, this sounds good. Who wouldn't want social justice? But without a biblical framework for morality, their definitions of justice are ever-moving targets and they're often unbiblical. You can be an evil oppressor simply by owning more private property than another person, or by simply being part of the dominant cultural group, something today that we label as white privilege. Or you could be quote-unquote sinning just by having people work under you at a business. Likewise, the other thing to keep in mind is that the solutions of critical theorists often involve even graver sins than the apparent sins being committed. So, for example, to alleviate private property, we have the government-sanctioned plunder and theft of that property, right? Both forms of biblical injustice. Or perhaps many critical theorists champion the promotion of wicked sexual perversions, things like Black Lives Matter celebration of queer-affirming lifestyles, And, of course, many groups war against, quote, cisgender normative privilege. Sixth, critical theorists relied on subversive language that hid the radical agenda behind their writings and teachings. Now, you've got to understand, they were in Germany, and they were surrounded by the strong vestiges of at least a remnant of Christian culture. And so the Frankfurt School realized it couldn't just come out of the Marxist closet altogether. And so like any revolutionary movement, it relied on subversive language and deceitful messaging, hidden agendas. Bronner lays this out specifically when he says critical theorists relied on sopian form of convoluted writing that shielded their radical beliefs. So what does this do? Well, this makes critical theory difficult at many points to pin down. So if you go back as I did and you read any of the original guys, including Marcuse, you can read Holkheimer and uh, Habermas. Any of these guys, what you're going to find is they're very difficult. Like, what is this guy talking about? And they will often talk about things like freedom, liberation, and social justice without ever clearly defining what those terms mean. And when they do try to define their aims, it's often in a cloud of murky statements and academic-sounding verbosity that most ordinary people would not understand. I've gone to seminary, I have a degree in philosophy, and I still don't understand half the time what they are talking about. And here's the point. All of this is intentional. Not surprisingly, this is the same tactic used by the descendants of critical theory even today. Everyone from critical race theorists to social justice warriors and pastors trying to bury radical ideas beneath the shroud of these widely accepted beliefs, traditional values, or orthodox Christianity, right? How many pastors are trying to slap a veneer of scripture on top of critical race theory? The SBC is saying things like, well, critical race theory is a helpful analytical tool. When in fact, as we're finding out in this episode, it's antithetical to Christianity at its very core. Now, a good example of this sort of tactic of just misleading language, is what happened recently with Matt Chandler and J.D. Greer. All the intellectual gymnastics that they had to perform in order to defend the statement Black Lives Matter and encourage Christians to use that statement, while at the same time supposedly trying not to defend the organization Black Lives Matter, which they said had been overrun with a few radicals. As we talked about in past episodes, that was patently false. But again, their language is deceptive. Seventh, critical theorists relied on art to beautify that which was wicked, grotesque, or perverted, and to make morally virtuous things seem dull and unappealing. One of the biggest proponents of this tactic was Walter Benjamin. He was a champion of using art, music, and poetry to make profane and grotesque things seem appealing. Hence, the onslaught of dissonant music, bizarre paintings like Edward Munch's The Scream, and the gaudy art galleries most working class American men would only bother to attend because their, well, snobbish wannabe elite wife makes them go. To be fair, most of the critical theory people were hostile to what they dubbed the culture industry, and Marcuse was especially outspoken about this. He hated what we would call pop culture. He saw it as a sort of opiate of the masses that blinded people to critical thinking. And many others, like Theodore Adorno, actually argued that leisure time, well, it shouldn't be used for leisure. It should be used for thinking critically and deeply about the issues of life. They were far more highbrow in their taste, that's true. But they still believed that art, music, and poetry held tremendous power for the refined palate— and was fully capable of radically transforming culture, something that critical race theorists still use today by way of media, TV, Netflix, and other outlets. Eighth, critical theory relied on the influence of intellectual elites to shape the tastes of working-class people. An active member of the Communist International until he was expelled in 1926, Karl Korsh championed the idea of what he called the homeless ultra-left intellectual, who helped influence the values of the common man. Now, the idea behind what Korsh was talking about was this. It was to use respected intellectuals, perhaps those from the upper crust or the, the bourgeois, to influence other upper crusty folks and then to get them to posture before the culture and the lower classes. And so what would happen, hopefully, they thought, was that the working class people would be convinced to buy into this rhetoric about how oppressive everything was in society. It's the People magazine effect that we see in full force today. Whatever the important people are doing, well, we as working class people think we ought to be doing it as well. So think of the Hollywood types that host cocktail parties with their media mogul pals and they're conversing with their Harvard professor friend about Robin DiAngelo's book, White Fragility, which inspires them to host a John Lennon themed video on TikTok in which they apologize for their heinous whiteness. Now, what's the effect? It, well, this trickles down to the working stiff soccer moms, many of whom have never even thought a racist thought in their lives, but they feel intent on bemoaning their white privilege just before they head over to their overmortgage rant style home after working a 12-hour shift at the hospital, all because a self-important intellectual wrote a book about how wicked white people are just for existing. Ninth, the goal of critical theory is a utopian society. Now, while different theorists struggle to articulate what this utopian vision would look like, or even how to achieve it, The basic idea was a state of complete happiness for all men as a result of total equality, which in essence meant no oppression, no hierarchy. The concept was that through total autonomy and liberation of individuals from traditional, and I mean Christian, morality, the removal of private property and constant labor, society could achieve a blissful state of, well, total happiness. Oddly enough, many theorists viewed this salvific vision as never ultimately attainable. Bronner writes this, quote, Existence is always unfinished. Its end is always not yet in sight. There is no absolute salvation or redemption. There is no day of judgment. The dream of the best life constantly glimmers anew as humanity reflects on what it has ignored. End quote. So, despite the utopian dream world, Marxist critical theory is, by nature, nihilistic. And at a practical level, Marxism simply doesn't produce what it promises. Think about all the promises that were made in the last century and what was delivered. We were promised utopia, but instead what the world got was communist China, Soviet Russia, and the deaths of hundreds of millions of people in the gulags hardly the utopian vision that was foretold. You see, the end result is not justice, but a total disregard for human life. And as Solzhenitsyn said, when you divorce God from the equation, there's no longer any basis for morality. Tenth, critical theory is a competing religion that is utterly incompatible with Christianity. It is not a helpful analytical tool, but it is an alien worldview. Now, one of the resources I would recommend on this note comes from Neil Shenvey, who has an apologetics website dealing with many of the issues of critical race theory, intersectionality and social justice causes that are impacting the church today. I'll leave in the show notes a link so you can check out Neil's work. It is very helpful. He has a lot of articles that are linked, as well as a lot of resources and material that he's put together as well. I'd encourage you to check out his analysis, but for now, I'll simply point out that critical theory does this. It redefines sin, redemption, and salvation in utterly humanistic terms. And as we go through this, you can see how it really is its own religion. Now, in their own words, this is what critical theorists will say. They will essentially define sin as the oppressor complex. And this sin people inherit simply by by being born into that class so it in effect it works like original sin you're born into a class and because of your birth into adam or into whiteness you inherit this sin and so that person must spend a lifetime repenting of their majority status or what we would call today their white privilege society itself must excommunicate all nonconformists to the religion of the great awakening Now, what's interesting about it is that there's this picture of redemption and repentance and sanctification, but in this Marxist world of utopian paradise, you can never actually achieve redemption. So, unlike the George Strait song, in this case, it's guilt without end. Amen. In Christian circles, this sadly means woke pastors are rebuilding the dividing wall that Christ tore down when he was crucified. And so, what they're doing is they're Fueling these divisions between people groups and creating animosities many times over perceived slights instead of bringing reconciliation through the gospel, which is what they're supposed to be doing. But no, what do they do? The preachers of white guilt fuel the animosity between people groups. Make no mistake, critical race theory is an alien religion and it must be rejected by Christians. Now, the third thing that I want to do in this episode is take a look at the evolution of critical theory. It's come a long way since the 1930s to where we have its manifestations today. So I want to examine that briefly. Critical theory has changed throughout the years, no doubt. And something that Charles R. Kessler captures well in his essay titled The Old New Left and the New New Left. Kessler compares the Marcusean critical theory of the 60s and 70s with the manifestations of the ideology today, and he lists the striking differences. We'll talk about some of those. But first, I want to give you a little bit of history. Marcuse and others taught in colleges, as I said, in the 1960s and 70s. And this was a large reason why you had the campus hippie leftist movements, the New Left was very influential on campuses, and as my friend Jacob would say, they, they were undoubtedly commies, okay? But they were trying at some level to be intellectually rigorous, and again, to some degree, they were trying to be logically consistent. If you read Marcuse, he's clearly well-read. Um, he's trying to expound his beliefs in, in at least a sort of systematic way. Even though you may not disagree with it, you can say, okay. Sure, this guy's mind is clouded by LSD and his time in Nazi Germany, but they have some shred of decency in trying to articulate what what their viewpoint is. But now you look at critical theory as it's morphed into critical race theory since the light, late 1980s, and you've got other disciplines as well. These are really just all offspring of critical theory and its application in, in unique segments of minority communities. So again, critical race theory is one. You have intersectionality, you have queer theory, and a bunch of others. You see, this was the natural logical progression, is that you were going to get critical race theory, this is kind of the umbrella term, and then it's going to be applied to all these seemingly endless lists of non-heteronormative transgender Aunt Jemima minority groups, right? And, And all these groups feel more than a touch oppressed, and especially after they read these books, they say... Yes, I am being slighted at every turn. I knew it. Now, one of the important and probably most seminal works in this new wave of critical theory was Richard Delgado and Gene Stefanik's book. It's called Critical Race Theory. And it is sort of about a collection of teachings that they picked up in 1989 at a conference and then everything that kind of followed from there. It especially follows sort of how the legal world. Uh, began to change around critical race theory and intersectionality. Now, most of all, this book marked the transition away from what we would consider acts of real, objective, demonstrable racism to the acceptance of terms like systemic racism and microaggressions. What are microaggressions? Well, they are, they re- this is the definition. They are the real or perceived, intentional or unintentional, Racial, ethnic, or sexually disparaging actions or thoughts against a minority group. So you see, the problem is you can be racially aggressive or sexually aggressive and offensive simply because somebody perceives that you are, whether you intend to or don't intend to. In other words, the only standard for an act to be considered racist is the perception of the minority group, whether there's real intent or not. There's no critical, rational, well documented support for systemic racism. And we pointed that out in past shows. There's the demand that you accept this untested proposition or you're going to be labeled as a heretical racist. This is what the new critical race theory looks like. Likewise, intersectionality is the way in which all these minority categories might intersect. For example, you might be a thrice oppressed minority. Because you're a black trans woman. And so it's not just that you're black. It's not just that you're trans. It's not just that you're a woman. There's an intersection. And now we're going to talk about all the ways in which you're oppressed at that intersection of all those different combinations of minority classes or groups. And so now you can weaponize your minority status against oppressor classes who are committing injustice against you, you're told, simply by them existing. So you can see what's happening here. In other words, critical race theory has taken a very postmodern, non-rational turn since about the early 1990s, and it's been picking up steam ever since. Notice how it makes literally zero rational sense. And most of the people who defend it, they haven't actually thought it through. If you ask people today, well, prove to me that there's systemic racism, they don't even try to. They just call you a racist. Well, of course there's systemic racism. I said there is. Why are you even questioning that? Probably the perfect picture of this inaction is something that happened within the last week or so. There was this video that surfaced of a group of basic rich white girls who were standing in a downtown area screaming profanities at police officers and accusing them of racism. And all the cops were black. Like you can't even make this stuff up. It's why you can be canceled as a criminal racist, so-called, without any action, motive, or intent, let alone a trial by a jury of your peers. You'll be canceled on social media in about 25 minutes. Quite simply put, the critical race theory train has gained the momentum of the mob. It's run off the tracks completely, and it is now headed for the nuclear warhead depot at 10,000 miles per hour. Now, Kessler wrote this when describing Delgado and Stefanik's book, and I want to read it because it's an apt description of the entire fanatical movement and what's become of critical theory. Kessler writes this, quote, The book presumes the truth of an easygoing and politically convenient postmodernism without ever bothering to establish it or reflect on the alternatives. But that's what's so handy about postmodernism, isn't it? It lets you get on with it. Skip past the questions of truth and justice and just get right down to the delicious matter of power. In the present case, that means cue the law professors and radical feminists. So far as I can tell, the ideology of the new campus left was born from a shotgun marriage of critical legal studies, a postmodern enthusiasm at elite law schools, particularly Harvard, just when Barack Obama was studying there in the late 1970s and 80s, and radical feminism. What drew them together was the discovery that formal formal or legal equality, by then essentially achieved for blacks and women, did not guarantee equality of results, and above all did not guarantee the most essential aspect of equality of results, the feeling of equal recognition and respect. So hear that. The feel this is what these people are after. They're after the feeling of equal recognition and respect. How do you how do you quantify that? How do you make that objective in the real world? Well, the answer is you don't. You just hold that over other people and make them feel guilty for the rest of their lives. And this is what critical race theorists want to do today. Continuing with a quote, he says this. They join together in pursuit of that comprehensive equality. And of the high that only that feeling could give, and they dared any man to put asunder what Harvard Law School had brought together. End quote. Well, I hope this has been a helpful episode of the Hard Men podcast, and I thank you for listening. Hopefully, as you get an introduction and then you can check in the show notes, we'll give you some more materials and resources. We really have just kind of gotten to the tip of the iceberg today. But again, I hope that it opens the door for you. You can do some research and you can sharpen your mind about this ideology that's invading the church and the culture. Now, in coming episodes, we're going to discuss the newer forms of this theory, critical race theory, as well as intersectionality and how that's been impacting the modern church and culture. So be sure to stay tuned for that. Again, check out the resources in the show notes. And if you found this podcast helpful, I would encourage you to become a Patreon supporter. We've had a lot of people join us on Patreon support. They're going to get a 16-ounce beer mug, so you can let the next pint be on us. That's got the Hard Men podcast logo on it. And we do appreciate your support if that is you. And Hopefully you can join us in supporting as well. Until next time, men, stay frosty, fight the good fight, Act Like Men.